The Legal Gaggle, a podcast at the intersection of legal education and the practice of law. I'm your host, Jeffrey Jones, podcasting from the campus of Lewis and Clark Law School. Today's topic, practice-ready graduates. Here's a question. When you get a new job, who's responsible for showing you how to do that job? Whether it's a job on fries at McDonald's or a lineman at a factory or a nurse at a hospital or a lawyer at a law firm. Yes, you qualify for the job, but the employer still has to train you to do it. Isn't that right? I think it's fair to assume that an employer who decides to hire someone at the same time elects responsibility for training that same person. Well, this common sense view is being challenged in the legal marketplace right now. For this audience, it goes without saying that legal markets have changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Even a decade ago, law firms who hired new law graduates embraced the idea that it was their job to train their new employees. Back then, clients were tolerant of subsidizing a law firm's costs of training young lawyers. But with globalization and the economic crash of 2007 and 2008, clients began to insist that only fully skilled lawyers work on their matters. To put it differently, clients began to refuse to pay for the time it took law firms to train their young lawyers and refused even to allow newbies to cut their teeth on a client's dime. Thus began the clamor in the legal marketplace for, and I quote, practice-ready law graduates. Translation, law graduates who law firms do not have to train and who could walk out of law school and immediately do everything that seasoned lawyers can do. As a law professor at Lewis and Clark, I'm always looking for ways to improve our education. So I was on this bandwagon. I was until I read an article by Professor Robert Conlon from the University of Maryland Law School. Professor Conlon's article, Practice Ready Graduates, A Millennialist Fantasy, was a game changer for me. That's why I had to have him on the legal gaggle. Professor Conlon, welcome to The Legal Gaggle. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to talk about your piece on practice-ready law graduates, and I'll jump right into it. Professor Conlon, what got you interested in the topic of practice-ready law graduates? Uh, Two things, really. Uh, I started life as a clinical professor uh, and did that for about 10 years and then another 20 years of teaching simulated skills courses. So I have a longstanding interest in the subject. Uh, and then the other thing that interested me was the um, almost hysteria on the blogs uh, discussing this topic. Um, one of the things that sort of motivated me throughout my life is the the, the great pleasure I get in puncturing overinflated balloons. And I <laughs> I sort of saw the practice already graduates uh, phenomena as an overinflated balloon. Well, in a good way, you burst my bubble, and that's why I <laughs> wanted to have you on the show. So let's answer the question first. Is there such a thing as a practice-ready law graduate? Is there? No. Uh, The problem is this. That is, law schools turn out people to do all kinds of things. Uh, Only about 60% of the graduates even go into practice. And then when you subdivide practice into all of its various categories, uh, the notion of practice-ready becomes unintelligible because it has to be ready for what? And the requirements change from place to place. So there's no such thing as a kind of generically ready person for law practice. Um, and in that sense, um, uh, I think that, that the concept has no meaning. Um, yeah, so much so that you actually call this a fantasy, but you call it a millennialist fantasy. In what way is right. it a fa- You've explained why it's a fantasy. In what way is it millennialist? Well, millennial in the sense that it's brought to you by millennials. This is really a reprise of the clinical education movement of the 60s and 70s which I was, you know, a major participant. If you'd asked us back then 
uh, 50 years from now, would this argument still be going on and would be would private practitioners be the principal people pushing it? We all would have all would have laughed. So in that sense, it's millennial because of the time and circumstances in which it's raised. But it also has a kind of um, a utopian thinking quality about it, a perfectibility quality about it that is one of the characteristics of millennial thinking, that somehow we'll be able to reach a kind of a perfect world, fair, just, and complete. Uh, and again, I think that's just, that's not going to happen. That's just um, imaginary, and a fantasy by definition is an imaginary phenomenon. Granting that the practice-ready graduate is a fantasy, uh, you also argue that it's simply a bad idea, that we shouldn't do it even if we could. Why not? Two reasons, really. I mean, um, one is that it will divert resources from other parts of the law school that um, should not should continue apace. In other words, I think of law school, all the parts of the law school is working together. Uh, the teaching of practice skills depends upon uh, the teaching of critical thinking, uh, of interpretation of text, uh, analytical reasoning, and all of that. And the argument for practice-ready graduates is not so much an argument for the introduction of a new subject into law school as it is for a shifting of the balance of resources from one area of law to another. And I think the balance in most places actually is pretty good right now, and I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't get off uh, into in sort of taking money away from the critical thinking skills part of legal education. So in that sense, not a good idea, not a good reason to do it. Uh, well, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on air is because in addition to your debunking of the practice-ready graduate, you say some really deep things about the nature of legal education. In one part of your article, you draw a distinction between black-letter law, practicing law, and what you just mentioned, clinical education. Could you say something about those distinctions? Sure. I mean, they all fit together. In other words, black letter law is kind of a knowledge-based phenomenon. I mean, you learn about stuff uh, that you ordinarily wouldn't come across. But law in the abstract by itself is sort of useless unless you can use it, uh, turn it into something, uh, some sort of outcome that's, that's worth producing. And so that's where you, they inevitably, or law, not knowing law inevitably connects with being able to have practice skills that can cause you to put it into operation. Clinical education, in some respects, is the one place in the law school where these two things do come together, and there's an attempt made to sort of uh, teach people how to interrelate them, cause them to function together. Um, and so in that sense, all three of these things are essential parts of a complete legal education. You really wouldn't be a good lawyer, a good thinker, uh, a good politician, a good business leader, or anything like that, um, if you couldn't do all three of these things. They fit together. They're really not competing with one another at all. One consistent theme of your article is that we could not make practice-ready lawyers if we wanted to with the time that we have in law school, three years. Couldn't that be used as an argument for cutting out clinical education, simply focusing on black-letter law altogether? Well, I think the thing about black-letter law is that, it, as you say, it's just knowledge. And once you learn how to acquire knowledge, you can go out and do that on your own. You don't have to be drilled in it over and over again. So I don't think you need uh, all of law school to essentially pass on information that people can learn on their own. They should they should learn how to learn it on their own, but they can do that. Uh, I do think that the, the skills that one learns in clinical courses are a major part of the subject matter of law school. In other words, the critical thing about the legal system is not so much what law promises as what law delivers. You really need to know both things or to be able to produce both things. And without practice skills, you really can't deliver on the promise of law. So you have to have these two things working together 
not in isolation from one another. And to the extent you eliminated one or the other from law school, I mean, you'd be taking legal education back uh, into the antediluvian times. Now, I, I think that the clinical education is here. It, it has lots of problems. It needs lots of work, but it is an essential part of a legal education. One of the big problems it has is it's really, really expensive. But some of the argument for getting rid of clinical education is because it serves a very, very small number of students, some would argue, at the expense of the larger student body. No, and see, this, this is going to vary tremendously from school to school. Uh, at my school, for example, everyone uh, takes a clinical course, um, at least one and often more. And so it wouldn't be true that only part of the student body would be served. But, as I say, it plays a smaller or greater role in the curriculum of schools everywhere else. The balance issues, I think, are up for individual schools to resolve. Uh, I don't think that anyone can say across the board what's the right proportion of one or the other. But I do think that you need to have both if you want to make a claim that you are fully educated as a lawyer. You need to be able to have taken ideas, put them into operation, take responsibility for them, make choices. I mean, in one sense, all skill is learned through a very simple process. You observe somebody who's good at it. You try to emulate what they're doing. You critique uh, your attempt at emulation, uh, and you try to invent better ways of doing it, and you repeat it. You just do that. You go through that cycle over and over and over again. It's the way you learn anything, Uh, ideas, how to play tennis, how to play golf, uh, how to practice law. Um, And if you take any part of that out, I think you're really just destroying the education. Let's delve down a little bit now. You've made a pretty clear case for why practice-ready graduates are impossible, but I'm guessing that there are going to be a lot of people, especially practitioners, uh, who would argue that this is a self-serving argument for law schools. One of the reasons I really enjoy your article is because you go beyond the mere instrumental arguments for or against practice-ready lawyers, and you talk about philosophical and psychological barriers to, to that challenge. Could you say something about the philosophical obstacle to practice-ready graduates? Sure. I mean, it it finds its roots in the Aristotelian notion of um, dispositions uh, informed by reflection. I mean, the way that you develop skill, the way you develop uh, moral norms, virtues, and things of that sort, uh, essentially is by, as you say, imitating people who are regarded as embodiments of them, trying to implement them yourselves, reflecting on it. And this is a process that takes time. Uh, You can't really uh, sort of reduce or, or take an entire lifetime and compress it into a single semester. And so the most you can do in a semester is help people understand what that process looks like, uh, give them a sense about how to proceed on their own, uh, learn on their own once they get out of it, and get some sort of early experiences at doing it. But the notion that in a single semester you could turn a person to a sort of fully developed, philosophically astute practitioner uh, just doesn't make any sense. So that's a, so education's function at that point, school's function at that point, is mostly kind of to describe the path. Think of, think of law school as kind of like a Google Maps for becoming uh, virtuous. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it tells you where you have to go. It gives you several different directions or ways of getting there. It gives you some sense of how long it will take, you know, but you still have to get there. Uh, you have to make the drive. I love it. I love it. So if law school is really a Google Map toward virtue at the practice of law, you mentioned that there's also a psychological obstacle to right. making practice-ready law graduates. What's that obstacle? 
Uh, it's not so much, well, it's, it's more of a setting or, than an obstacle in the sense that role development is the sort of phenomena that law schools or education sort of exploits at this point. People are developing their conceptions of how they want to be, not just as individuals, as people, but as lawyers, their place in the world, what, what interests they want to serve, uh, what principles they believe in. And, you know, 22-year-olds, even older law students, come in not sort of fully formed. And so what law school does is it tries to help people think out those issues in that context of sort of ongoing development. And that, again, takes time. It's not just a road to Damascus kind of moment where all of a sudden, you know, you all of a sudden you know who you are, what you want to be, and where you're, what your place in the world is. Uh, these things get worked out slowly, incrementally, in conversations, interactions with other people. Um, and so, again, the notion is that somehow you could reduce all development uh, to a law school course, even a law school career, I think doesn't make any sense. We often discuss whether law school should be longer or shorter. Last A couple of years ago, President Obama made the news for arguing that perhaps law school should consider moving down to two years. Maybe we can't make practice-ready graduates, but maybe we could put them further along the path simply by having a longer legal education. What do you think? This argument has always reminded me of an argument that we've had in faculty meetings before when we've thought about con uh, cutting the semester short or changing the number of minutes in a I'm class. I'm familiar with those. And there's always somebody who speaks up and says, I can't teach my class in any fewer than, and then fill in, whatever it is. <laughs> and, and I thought, sure you can. You just will teach a different class. <laughs> You'll teach a slightly smaller class or a slightly larger class. I don't think the number of years is critical. I think it represents a kind of compromise between, say, an MBA and a PhD. Uh, an MBA is kind of like um, law school uh, without the politics and morality. A PhD is kind of like uh, graduate humanities education without the motor skills. That someplace in between, uh, law school tries to be a place that teaches you both motor skill, politics, morality, and an understanding of the world you're going to function in. And three years, I think, has worked pretty well for a long time. I think there's more than enough to fill three years in the curriculum. But you could have a law school that was two years. It would just do less. Uh, you could have it in one year. I basically have a paralegal school, and it would do less. Uh, there isn't anything that says it has to be one way or another. I just think the, the balance it struck is actually a pretty good one. The law school curriculum is richer than it's ever been. I mean, I went to law school in the 60s, and I'll tell you, the stuff now that you learn in law school is so much more interesting, so more diverse, so more, much more comprehensive. Uh, the curriculum, I think, is as good as it's ever been. And so in that sense, I, I think it's, it's actually pretty successful right now. Later in your article, you argue that the clamor for practice-ready law graduates really has nothing to do with what's best for them or their education. If this conversation really isn't about what's best for law students, what do you think it's really about? Well, this is actually an interesting uh, topic. I, it's, it's very confused. I think that the pressure for practice-ready law schools comes from the law firms uh, in the sense that if it were possible, they would like to have a world in which they didn't have to do most of the training that they now do, in part because they can't bill for it, and, and that's becoming a major issue in sort of the world of the modern law firm where all firms are compared against these sort of billing numbers. But the irony in all of that is that law firms don't trust law schools to do training, and they don't think that law school training is very good. That's been true since the McCrate report, where that was very explicitly laid out. Law firms actually would prefer the big laws. Now, I'm talking big law. I'm not talking about small, mid-sized firms. They would prefer to do training in which they can teach people about the firm culture, uh, the types of work that the firm does, 
use their own notions of who are the best people to do this training. And so in one sense, law firms want to do their own training. They don't want to pay for it. And, and they're taking this somewhat sort of contradictory position that law schools should do more as a way of saving money. But what law, when, if law schools did more, we wouldn't trust it. I don't think that they've fully sorted out the contradiction uh, in that particular stance. But I think the, the, all the pressure for practice-ready graduates is coming from the bar. Clients don't care one way or the other, uh, and law students don't care one way or another. The real beneficiary in practice-ready graduates, if the phenomenon was real, would be law firms. And as I say, uh, they've got a contradictory view on that. You make two classic points in your article that I think would go back to the foundations of law school. One is you maintain that thinking like a lawyer is the ultimate practice skill. Now, this is a view, an orthodox view, that is under attack within law schools and within most legal communities. Would you just reiterate your case for thinking like a lawyer? Yeah, and actually I would even generalize it to more than that. I mean, my basic point is just this, that in, in life generally, no matter what it is that you're trying to do, ultimately it has to start with ideas. Um, you have to have a plan. You have to have some conception of the situation that you're in, some notion about what your goals are. You have to at least be able to engage in instrumental uh, reasoning. It helps you see how you get from one place to another. Um, if not, uh, if, you, if you don't do that, then if you're successful, it's going to be largely just coincidental. Uh, ultimately, a person who can't think can't function uh, at any level. And so thinking like a lawyer includes all kinds of lawyer problem solving, from figuring out what a case means to figuring out what an optimal uh, resolution to a dispute might be, figuring out how to draft a document. I mean, ultimately, you have to have some notion about how this process operates and what you want to do and how to get from point one to point two. The idea that you could exist in life generally without being able to think just doesn't make any sense. And then when you add to that the notion that you're part of an evolutionary system. That is, you don't expect the world in which you enter after law school is going to stay the same forever. You have to have some notions about how it ought to change as circumstances change around you. You have to be able to reform laws. You have to be able to update them and take new technologies into account. And so the notion that somehow you could do all of that without uh, having some set of skills that help you do it doesn't make any sense at all. And that's what the thinking like a lawyer really consists of. It doesn't, con it doesn't consist of simply saying what the holding uh, in a case is uh, or what the facts of a case are or what the dicta. Law school thinking uh, is, or the thinking taught in law school now, it's just a much more complicated phenomenon than that. I'm going to read a line from your article right up front, page two, that I uh -huh. think speaks directly to law firms as well as law students. Here's the quote. Law schools cannot revive the labor market or improve the employment prospects of their graduates by providing a different kind of education. I actually think most law students and most law firms, and probably many folks in law schools, believe there's some kind of cause and effect between how and what we learn in law school and their students' job prospects. And I don't, in this sense. But the idea is, is basically this. Jobs are going to depend upon sort of academic credentials, and law schools are going to be able to place people based upon their academic reputation because law firms are going to bet on intelligence or what they think of as ability rather than training. Smart money always bets potential uh, rather than a present state of mind. 
So what law firms are going to say is that even if a person may hit the ground running uh, because the person's had a very intensive training program in law school, a person who is quick is going to catch up pretty fast and is going to pass that person and over the course of a career is going to do a whole lot more for the firm than someone who actually just happens to have really good entry-level motor skills. And so everybody always bets on, on talent, not on preparation. And so in that sense, I think getting people sort of up to speed so they can walk into the office on the first day and know how to make an assignment to a secretary uh, is really uh, short-sighted. And here's a side question. How strongly do grades correlate with practice readiness? Grades are a tricky issue, particularly because most uh, in clinical education in particular, they have such uh, a wide variety of meanings. I think that certainly firms hire on the basis of not so much grades as ranking and for particular skills, you know, people who are very good at trial advocacy or appellate advocacy or whatever. But again, grades to the extent that they are a synonym for ability or talent will correlate with success in getting jobs and will correlate over a course of a lifetime and success in practice. But there will be lots of exceptions. Um, There's no question that some people are just good at getting grades and it doesn't have any transfer effect anyplace else. But everything, everything else being equal, you would rather have a person who has done well uh, and, and attempts to measure the person's ability to think over a person who hasn't done that well. Towards the end of your article, you say something that I think our listeners are going to find very, very controversial. You say that in theory, little could be done to improve upon the current design of legal education. This harkened back to uh, Langdell's model of legal education, which some say hasn't changed very much. Now, I'm guessing this is going to be a pretty hard sell. Isn't there anything law schools should be doing better right now? Well, actually, uh, I would characterize what I said just a little bit differently from that. But before I do that, things have changed a whole lot since Langdell. Uh, Anyone who believes that um, we're still trapped in the sort of Kingsfield kind of Socratic method stuff has either visited a very limited number of law schools uh, or, need, or needs to get out more. I mean, it just the world is, 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 has come quite a, long, quite a long way since then. But I think that in the, in the article, what I was describing there was the design of clinical programs, that uh, it would be hard to improve upon a situation in which a person is able to develop virtue, develop skill, uh, engage in the developmental process of role adjustment, Hard to, hard to construct a situation that's better than the modern clinical course most of the time. Now, what I'm doing is I'm assuming clinical course is at their best. Uh, well done, uh, led by very good teachers. I mean, obviously, you don't judge any phenomena by its worst examples. Uh, and there's a lot of bad clinical instruction out there, just as there's a lot of bad instruction in con law and everything else. But if you take the very best operations, I think you can't improve upon a situation where you put a person in, in, a, in a context where he's representing someone, has responsibility for it, has to take the lead and do a lot of complicated strategic thinking on his own, uh, and then has to get feedback from a mentor on that and then adjust and run with that, you know, improve upon it, repeat it, and that sort of thing. It's just hard to, to, to uh, come up with an improvement on that sort of situation. And I think the very best clinical courses uh, are run that way. Now, legal education as itself, there are some places that I suppose still haven't recognized the flood, but I mean, I think most legal education has, has come quite a long way from uh, the road drill and the so-called Socratic dialogue. To conclude our conversation, I'd like to quote a line from your article that seems so obvious, but apparently isn't. And the quote reads as follows, becoming proficient at practice tasks is the work 
of work, so to speak. The result of performing tasks over and over again on a daily basis under the guidance of mentors as part of the process of being socialized into a profession. I hope that after this interview, more people will actually check out your article. They can find a link to it on our website. Professor Conlon, I'd like to thank you for being on The Legal Gaggle. Well, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. It was nice to do. I enjoyed it.